90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Spending a lot of time on my computer. <laughs> Why are you spending a lot of time on your computer? That is uncharacteristic. Isn't it? And get this, I already have like five Trello boards all lined up with all these project deadlines and checklists and yeah nice i know and i've used it on the mac and the windows machine i'm cross-platform i'm super stoked about this (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's mostly let's not kid ourselves it's mostly because i can customize the backgrounds and so each different project has a really cool different background picture (laughs) of course it does (laughs) That's what hooks me. Do you have lots of colors and cool backgrounds? I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, mm -hmm, yeah, this is definitely the project management tool for me. So I have been obsessively curating those boards for like, probably for classes I'll never teach again, but I did teach five years ago. And so therefore it gets a board. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. mm -hmm. And of course, I've been watching lots of lava videos. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. So Hawaii is erupting. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it is. So there's a retired meteorology professor couple that moved to Mountain View, which is five miles approximately. It's actually a little bit less uh, to the northwest of Leilani Estates. (laughs) Which is where all the fissures have been and the lava consuming Ford Mustangs. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I've been constantly texting her after every earthquake and after every new explosion do you have pictures what happened are you okay okay how's it how's it going so yes she has and there there's a pretty sizable earthquake as well 6.9 yes and she said that the day that you know they had several tremors before that um she said that her dogs were going crazy And she just figured, you know, maybe there's something in the air because of all this, literally, because of all this eruptions, and then those earthquakes hit. So she said that their behavior was a precursor to the earthquakes. Well, you know, there's a whole USGS Red Book on that that we should talk about sometime. (laughs) Yes, yes, there sure is. I thought that was really interesting. So when we had the big earthquake here, my dogs did the same thing. And so, uh, yeah, we will get back to that. But uh, that's what she said. She said the earthquake was pretty big. It uh, actually cut off the main water line to their house. It sheared it in half. And so she had to fix that. And, uh, yeah, she's got some pretty cool um, ash pictures. But she said it's actually been cloudy enough that you can't tell the volcanic ash picture clouds from the actual, you know, clouds. So (laughs) the pictures aren't really all that impressive. Well, the rain is likely going to be different. There's some talk of some rather acidic rain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, we've talked about here before, right? Where did we get our first atmosphere? We got it from volcanoes. And most of that stuff that volcanoes spew out is not, not lung friendly, shall we say. And not pH neutral. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, Um, she said several schools in the area had closed down um, just because of the air quality concerns and it's all kind of blowing away from them. So so that's good. But yeah, there's there's a lot to uh, a lot to be worried about out there. It's very interesting. Yeah. And contrary to what you might think, that's not actually going to be the topic of this week's show. (laughs) Exactly. While we would love to interview somebody 
out there talk about the event and what's going on. All of the folks at the Volcano Observatory, as you can imagine, are staggeringly busy. So we'll do a po- post-mortem on this event. Uh, right, exactly. And because neither one of us are volcanologists, uh, yeah, definitely. We need somebody much smarter than us to talk to about <laughs> about what's happening out there. And why the lava is so not what you would consider lava to look like. I know, exactly. So that's, that's one of the weird things about it is because they're having some explosions, which is not really what Hawaii lava is supposed to do, which I think a lot of people don't really know what's happening. So that's really scary. Though I do find it fascinating. I saw in the news recently uh, some video of lava approaching a gate at someone's property, just a standard cattle gate. Mm-hmm. And of course, the you know the paint catches on fire, and then this massive wall of rock bowls the gate over and keeps right on going. And they're like, nothing can stop the lava. It's like, <laughs> that little chain holding that gate shut, that's not impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's lava. <laughs> well, when we were having this discussion at work today, because over the weekend I went and bought a, a big chunk of stone for a project that I'm working on, uh, a big slab of sandstone that's a couple feet long and a little over a foot wide and about two inches thick. Okay. And we were commenting on how weighty it was. And then somebody at work was talking about getting uh, decorative stones for their yard. Mm -hmm. And they said, just a couple little ones. I said, well, do you realize how much granite weighs? (laughs) And, you know, it's, what, 2.6 grams per cubic centimeter is kind of the the geophysicist number for everything that's not sandstone. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And or 2.65 if we're doing, you know, geotechnical engineering. Yeah. And... (laughs) <laughs> that that works out to what about fifty seven hundred pounds for a cubic meter of rock, which is not that big. <laughs> <laughs> Cute little little piece, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you have this wall of lava that's taller than you are, about the width of a road and miles long, <laughs> it's it's got some force behind it. That chain link, it's not gonna work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, there's been actually a lot of articles about that. I think it's really funny about, yeah, K-Rail's in front of it, like in the movie Volcano. That's not going to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good try, though. <laughs> you just need Tommy Lee Jones. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what we're actually here to do is kick off the long-awaited Solar System series. Yay! Yay! I feel like there needed to be some cowbell in there. <laughs> oh, hold on. Here we go. clearly that's the sound of the solar system (laughs) exactly so this is uh going to be an interesting series as we are still recording it as this airs yes (laughs) and shannon goes to field camp which is worse than our normal connection of internet through barbed wire it is (laughs) so we're going to be splitting this into two parts of inner planets and outer planets Separated by a few shows in the center. Yes, hopefully just a few parts. (laughs) Depends on how the internet's working out there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and and, I mean, that's a totally legitimate separation, right? We got rocky planets, then we got the asteroid belt, then we got gas planets. So, you know, it makes sense, actually, spatially. (laughs) Ha, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, so this, despite the nightmare logistics, this is really exciting. And, you know, John had this idea that we should just march through the solar system and talk to people who know more about it than we do, which is basically everyone who works on it, right? Um, <laughs> and we figured that you guys would be really excited about it too, but we're going to kick it off this week with talking about some background about the solar system and sort of some of our questions that we had going into this that kind of prompted, you know, who we talked to when we're talking about all of our other planetary neighbors. Exactly. So, Shannon, how does one form a solar system? <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple question. Yeah, it is. I You just cook it for a little while and there you go. Now, <clears throat> so as much with everything and it's it's funny because i just actually did this native science talk today and a lot of creation stories start off with a big ball of mist so there's utter chaos and that's exactly where we started right except it's something that we call a nebula exactly so it's a nebula is this you know nebulous cloud of gases <laughs> and and other matter that is weakly gravitationally attracted and in some cases can start spinning right and so that is really what kicks stuff off so you have to perturbate your nebula that's the first step in the recipe <laughs> and once that spinning goes all these things start to stick together and you basically start to condense these gases together and you condense enough of them and you've got stars and that's exactly how our sun started well, and there's an interesting thing that happens as well when you start all of these gases and interstellar materials spinning, and that's that they start flattening out into a disk. Right. Um, man, I love this word. I don't, I don't know why, but it, it seems so scary, but it's really not. Um, so our sun was sitting there super less luminous than it was, right? We had a whole show on the faint young sun. Um, right. But it sat there with this basically tutu around it <laughs> and we call that tutu the protoplanetary disk because when you're spinning it flattens out all those things but within that disk was kind of the same thing that was in the nebula right it's a whole bunch of different elements hanging out together but as it starts to spin it starts to differentiate a little bit right and this is the principle that is used in centrifugal separators for industrial processes right Exactly. So, you know, just and on a, in a larger scale. <laughs> different kinds of spectrometry and, yeah, so a lot of places. But you start getting this separation of the heavy and light elements. The light elements are going to get flung very far out. Right, exactly. Um, you know, this same, I, I love it because when you're telling the story of how the solar system formed, and we harp on this all the time because I just think it's the most beautiful thing, is that it's the same physics over and over again, right? We started with this ball of gas, and it condensed to form the sun. And then we have this disk of gas, and it's going to start to condense to form the planets. In this case, we call it accretion. And so through the process of accretion, these different elements that are separated um, are going to start to stick together. So as these things start to stick together and accrete, we start getting this, this differentiation that is how we're separating the shows of rocky planets and gas giants. 
Right, exactly. And within each of those little balls that are sticking together through gravity, they're starting to, well, they're already rotating. So they continue to rotate around the sun, they're picking up new stuff, and they themselves start to differentiate, which we will talk about in virtually every show as we're talking about the planets. <laughs> um, because they don't all differentiate in the same ways, even though the same underlying physics is there, but we've got a lot of different elements, and obviously there's a lot of difference between the inner planets and the outer planets and the moons and how they got there. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the background of how our solar system started, but that also got me thinking, you know, how, how special are we? Are we special little snowflakes or not? No. <laughs> yes, we are, <laughs> just like everybody else. <laughs> Yeah, so we're not, and that's, I don't know, it could be comforting or disheartening. I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. So th there's this idea, right, that we're special snowflakes in that our, our planet is in the habitable zone. Where we can have liquid water and reasonable temperatures. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the special snowflake of our solar system is not typical. Well, mm -hmm. we didn't think it was typical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, well, we have this, this ideal setup for life. And we've been finding more and more planets, these exoplanets. And we said, well, some of these are in the habitable zone too. Their solar system doesn't necessarily look like ours. Their sun might not look like ours, but they're in the habitable zone. Uh -huh. And then the more we keep looking, <laughs> the more we keep finding solar systems that are looking more and more like ours. Yeah. Yeah. And so our, our thought of we're this unique little thing out here is kind of going away. But um, I want to put some numbers behind that, which is where I got really, I wouldn't say depressed, but yeah, where my special little snowflake idea got squashed, <laughs> which was, um, so as of the end of April, of this year, 2018, there were 3,725 confirmed exoplanets. That is a lot of little balls of aggregated rock. That is a lot. <laughs> a whole lot. So now that's, those don't include what John was just talking about, this habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone, right? It's just right, not too hot, not too cold business. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot fewer of those, and we're still working that out. Um yeah, and that's something that we're trying to pin down because it's hard to observe things that are just in our solar system, much less yeah. get a lot of information about things in other solar systems. Right, exactly. Um, I'm impressed that we even know that there are that many. Like, there's there's a whole lot on the list that are unconfirmed, right? Thousands more exoplanets. But, I mean, man, even when we're looking at these little exoplanets through Hubble, through the Kepler missions, you know, they're just tiny little dots so far away. So finding which ones are just right that we can, you know, take over four billion years from now, <laughs> that's pretty hard. I remember seeing on Twitter a PhD student in astrophysics that was studying a particular exoplanet, and somebody asked them what their planet looked like. <laughs> and so they showed them a, a figure and then got sad. They said, yes, that's right. I've spent my entire PhD working on these four pixels. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's so painful. That's so painful. I mean, we'll talk about that when we talk about uh, Pluto, right? Because that's what we had was just some pixels 
up until just a few years ago. And it's so mind-blowing to me. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, speaking of Pluto, because it's still a planet in my world. <laughs> um, this is where I thought maybe our solar system is unique. Maybe, you know, we found all these exoplanets that are rotating around stars. But how many of them have lots of planets like we do? Uh, about 613. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> So still a lot, right? <laughs> still quite a few multi-planet systems out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a ton. And um, we're not special little snowflakes. But the upside of not being unique <laughs> is that means that we can probably, right, apply most of these things we're learning about our solar system to these multi-planet systems we're discovering both in our galaxy and beyond. Right. So principle of uniformitarianism across planets. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's and, how geology works, John, until something blows up and then it's catastrophism all the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I, I think this is I think this is a fun thought experiment because not only are there multi planet systems, but there are also multi planet multi star systems. Oh, so now we're talking like Tatooine business, huh? Exactly. <laughs> That's so cool to think of. Like, I think a lot about what if we had more than one moon, right? Like, that would be cool. And then when you read Seven Eves, which if those of you who have listened to us for a long time, we were really obsessed with that book a while ago. Um, <laughs> you know, to think about a couple different moons hanging out in the sky. That's that's weird, too. But um, two suns? Hmm. Well, I'm thinking about inter solar system uh, communication uh, if there were other civilizations and even interstellar uh, sniping of planets Ooh. if you if that sounds interesting you have to read the three body problem oh, the, the whole go. series okay i'll have to get back into that one yeah i need some good field camp reading this should be appropriate then and, and you know the books are thick enough they can double as a bear weapon for you so. <laughs> God knows I need that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so, you know, the good news is all this stuff that we're going to talk about hopefully will eventually be applied somewhere later. So that's sort of the, that gets asked a lot in science. Like, why are we doing these things? Like, why are we doing them? And I think a lot of scientists are okay with the answer because that's what we do, right? You know, we're explorers. We have questions. We want answers. But don't forget, you know, this stuff can still be applied to problems later on and stuff you can't see. Those four pixels, you know, that's that's crazy. Also, need I mention, we are putting things in outer space. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, wasn't it? It was only a couple of years ago that Voyager left the solar system, right? The first thing that we've sent out that left the solar system. Yeah. Who knows that weird asteroid that passed by us? A couple months ago, that could have been shot off from somebody else, right? We sent a yeah. we we sent a robot, and they sent us a rock. <laughs> well, exactly. They're like, "What's this weird metal asteroid?" And we're like, "What's this weird rocky asteroid?" Yeah, they're both probes, right? It, exactly. <laughs> so exactly right. That one's gonna keep me up at night. I'm a little scared of aliens. So <laughs> thanks, but okay. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. So that we of course won't be tackling. Uh, you know, the question of the Drake equation and the probability of life outside the solar system is uh, 
a massive topic. Uh, and I want this on the record that that was the question I wanted to ask every one of the people we interviewed. But, you know, I thought I'd probably just keep it to myself. Right. <laughs> just so people would take us seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that it would be fun to talk about some of the questions that we have, because oftentimes people email us questions. Yes, and yeah. a lot of times we have to say, oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> And do some research or talk to somebody. Exactly. Yeah. That's every question that I get asked in class, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so this is uh, kind of our list of things that we want to learn while doing the solar system show or things that we're curious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what's what's your first one? You know, I always think of like, why do we target the planets that we target for missions? Like, why did Cassini go when it went? You know, why did New Horizons go when it went? Like, what are, so, you know, not all the people that we're talking to, you know, were part of making those decisions, but they probably have more insight than we do. And so, I mean, in my mind, is it technology driven? Like, it's really hard to see Venus, but it's a lot easier to put a camera on a rover and send it to Mars? Is that just like why we choose what we choose? I don't know. That's, that always interests me. So, you know, we didn't march through the solar system and say, we're going to Mercury first, then Venus, then Mars, kind of, but. Well, we didn't even go from closest to furthest strictly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's something that I am interested in finding out is just sort of why do we choose to study these planets when? Because it seems like stuff on Earth, you have to have a big natural disaster, and then everyone gets really interested in it, right? And there's a lot of money for it after that, and you can study it then, but it's not like anyone on Earth is really affected by Jupiter's red spot disappearing, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's one of the things that interests me. Like, why do we send what we send when we send it? All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So I think first on my list is I want to know what people that do this for a living are surprised that we don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because in doing some research for planning, trying to find guests for the series and working on the questions and the outline for the show, uh, there are some things that I've been struck by like, oh, I can just Google this obscure thing about this planet and get a very detailed answer. Or I can Google this pretty basic thing <laughs> about a planet, and the answer seems to be, oh, nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I taught a Geology of Extreme Climates graduate class last year, a couple years ago, and a third of the class focused on planets. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Like, what the interiors of these planets look like. That seems like a really basic thing, right? Or some, even what the surface is like. Or that. (laughs) (laughs) That There are several planets that we just don't have a complete set of images of them. Yeah, back to to this Venus thing. Venus is really close. Yeah. We don't know what it looks like. (laughs) Like, that's ridiculous, right? Like, it's our our closest neighbor. (laughs) It's our sister planet. No clue. I mean, we have a clue, but yeah, that's weird to me too. That was a good one. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that, that's that's what I'm curious about is what are some of the things that, you know, if if you could be magically transported to the planet that you study and live there for a month, what would you do? That's cool. 
that's cool. Um, I guess my next question is about moons, because I already expressed that I'm a little obsessed with moons. But we actually haven't talked to, because we're not finished recording, so we haven't talked to a lot of people who do moons yet, because we're starting in the <laughs> interior planets. Um, but moons are weird to me. A lot of them look an awful like, like planets, right? So Jupiter and Saturn have a billion moons. Were these all little guys that were going to become planets, but Jupiter and Saturn just won because they captured them with their gravity? You know, what moons were parts of their planets originally, like Phobos and Deimos on Mars, our moon? You know, that's that's really interesting to me. Mostly the moons of the outer planets. Like, how many? How weird would our solar system have looked if we would have had, you know, 50 planets instead of just what we have? Well, the little My Very Eager Mother just... just yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be more difficult. Sure would, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the uh, mnemonic length is that you can remember, but... <laughs> so... <laughs> I think that's a great point because it seems like a very delicate balance of you have some impactor that smashes into your planet or you have some body that's cruising by and it just happens to be at just the right speed either way that it doesn't escape, yeah. but it doesn't come back and crash in. It just stays <laughs> in orbit. Right. The arm length hug. Exactly. <laughs> like not too close, but yeah, that's, it's really weird. That's, um, eager to talk to Jupiter and Saturn people about that because I think that's that's very strange. Okay, so you're talking about Jupiter and Saturn. I want to know more about the gas giants because the most common description of them is, well, they're just big balls of gas. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, a relatively unsatisfying thing. One, there's fascinating meteorology that goes on on them. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But also... Are they just big balls of gas, or are there some actual hard, rocky, tectonic, interesting things happening at the core? Uh, right. Mm hmm And... Or do we know? Do Exactly. Do we know? Like, we've got really awesome pictures now of Jupiter and Saturn, but, okay, so those are cool pictures of the atmosphere. What's going on down there? Is there a surface? Where's it at? <laughs> like, I, I don't... Yeah, those are really interesting. And also, when you're planning a mission to a gas giant, so we, we've dropped atmospheric probes through several of these. Right. Uh, when you said the word surface, that kind of triggered the, what is a surface <laughs> on that planet? <laughs> and how do you even begin? They're, they're so huge. And how do you even begin to uh, plan a mission? And how do you navigate around something like that? Yeah, I mean... Uh, the the term attenuation just comes to mind because my god how can you even hear or see through that atmosphere exactly <laughs> like there's some crazy stuff going on and you know jupiter's red spot is getting smaller that's crazy right because weren't you little and you drew jupiter and then you put that big old zit on it right like oh yeah yeah so like two generations from now it's not even going to be around it's crazy it's the hmm. big hurricane is winding down yeah, exactly. I'm sure it'll pick something else up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's. I, I'm curious to learn more about the gas giants for sure, which will be our second half. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I feel like I feel like this should be your question, but it's mine. Um, <laughs> and my my question 
two that we've already talked about a little bit is, you know, there's all these sort of old, I have old in, in quotation marks, but, you know, older missions to the interior planets, right? Some of the first ones that we sent out, you know, especially when you talk about Mercury, right? Um, is there still data to be had from those things? Is there stuff we can glean from the data we collected then that we just didn't have the technology to deal with back then that we do now? Like, are we still learning stuff from these old missions or do we just need to send out a new one, you know? Yeah, well, that, that ties in to a question that I had, which was how much geophysics have we done ah, on these yeah. various bodies? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Because I know they, we've done some, so uh, we actually have an active seismic survey from the moon. Uh, after that, the astronauts put all the equipment out, and after they took off from the surface of the moon, the charges detonated, and so we had a, a nice little dynamite active source survey. Oh, that's exciting. And there have been seismometers on a couple of planets. A, a brand new, fancy, shiny one just blasted off from Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what what do we know from the geophysics on the various bodies? And yeah, can you know if I want to go get some pioneer data, is that possible? Right. It, yeah, that's that's exactly my point. That's very interesting. Uh, we were just talking about that today. Um, I did a lecture for some non-scientist, and I asked, you know, how did we figure out plate tectonics? Like, when do you think we figured that out, that there's magma beneath us? You know, everybody's like, ah, uh, you know, 1800s, 1700s? And I'm like, mm, no, you know, basically the 60s. So there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so... <laughs> How much geophysics do we have on our own celestial body? <laughs> Not a lot. Well, so, and uh, is is tectonics similar across the solar system? That one is really interesting to me because I guess I would... This goes back to the whole um, uniformitarianism thing, right? We study it here. This is how it works. But if you're on Mercury... There's a lot more gravity going on there, right? Like you're you're a lot closer to the big old sun. So, would you have had tectonics like that? The tectonics on Pluto, which we never thought existed because we only had you know 15 pixels of Pluto until New Horizons got there. Like, there's tectonics going on there. How do they look? Because they're so far away. I don't know. Yeah, and the planets that have been tectonically active but aren't now. Why did they shut down, and is that going to happen here? Right, exactly. Yeah, are we slowly grinding to a halt? Mm-hmm. Because that certainly makes my my uh, my field of study less relevant. <laughs> uh, I, I think you're good. I'm just going to say <laughs> for your lifetime, yeah. When you come up with some fancy equation, it might die after a while. <laughs> but as you go out towards, because I'm in charge of the gas planets obviously so i'm going to talk about them so um but when you go out towards there right like stuff like titan and stuff the tectonics aren't with rock they're with ice what (laughs) exactly and we get to talk about gas hydrates exactly ice is a mineral i remember but it's still it still behaves differently (laughs) so yeah that's weird that's really weird yeah and i guess sort of we've touched on this before but I'm very curious what people that do planetary exploration want to bring back to Earth from that. Right. Mm-hmm. Other yeah. than, you know, the numerous technologies that we've invented for planetary exploration. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Surely we're learning things 
and I think when we talk about Mars, this will become obvious, right? We're, even though we're observing these things on different planets, it's actually teaching a lot about our own planet. And maybe some, maybe it's because you go into thinking, okay, this is a new planet. Yeah, you have lots of ideas about how geologic processes work, but you're more open-minded because you don't really know, right? You're like, maybe this works like this. And then you discover this new geologic process. And then you look back here on Earth and go, hey, that looks an awful lot like this thing over here. Maybe these are related. Whereas, you know, you think you've got a really good handle on Earth, so your mind might not be broad enough to understand all the processes. Just a thought. Right. And in fact, for Earth, since we talk about Earth geology most of the time on this show, (laughs) uh, we're actually not going to talk to geologists on that one. So we'll leave you hanging in suspense there. Ooh. Three three shows in? Yeah. Okay. Mercury, Venus. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh, we got the sun. Sorry. Four shows in. Yeah. So that's a great point, actually, to to wrap up, is that next week we're going to start with our first guest, and it's actually not going to be on Mercury. We're going to start with the sun because it kind of powers the whole show. Right. Yeah, exactly. And also geophysics on the sun is really cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is one of the better books I've read recently, I will say. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. You'll have to tune in to figure out which book it is and how you can do geophysics on the sun, I say, with a shrugging motion. <laughs> <laughs> that was really weird. Helio seismology. That's beautiful. Exactly. But until then, we're going to talk about a different kind of material on this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> I wondered how you were going to segue from planetary bodies to ancient rubber. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this is actually a story about how rubber processing looks like it got started more than 3,000 years ago, not with Mr. Goodyear. <laughs> what? What do you mean? <laughs> um, this, is, this is really cool. Um, I had no idea that rubber processing could have been... I mean, it's as sophisticated as it is today, almost. And this is, of course, we're talking about in Mesoamerica, right? Um they had not just one use, but tons of uses and several different chemical processes to make different kinds of rubber. Yeah, so we're going to go back to the 16th century here. And as it turns out, uh, by the way, this is not formally published work yet. There is a paper in review. This is a press release from MIT Yeah. Uh, that will be linked in the show notes. But you can look for it in the Journal of Latin American Antiquity when it does mm-hmm. come out. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, these, these, these pre-Columbian people knew how to mix different things together and produce rubbers that were now, we would say, different durometer. I don't know. I wouldn't have said that, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that's a, uh, you know, materials engineering word. Yeah, so you know, you buy O-rings to put in your, your car or in a hydraulic cylinder. Mm-hmm. There are ones that are really squishy and ones that are hardly any squishy at all. So those would be different durometers. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. Contextually, I understood it, but <laughs> but these really range a lot, right? And so what the Mesoamericans did, you know, we have a whole bunch of paintings showing some of these products 
rubber products, right? So soles on shoes, rubber balls that they used um, for games and, you know, really deadly games, right? Because the losers got eaten. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so we know that they used it in a lot of different ways, but the way that they made it in these different ways is what's really interesting, right? Because they used the latex from rubber trees. Great. And juice from morning glory vines. And they cook those together in different proportions to make these different types of rubber. Well, and when they initially in this article said juice of the vine, morning glory is the last possible thing that came to my mind. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you done any research? Like, why, why morning glories? No, I, I don't know why they came to the conclusion of using morning glory juice yeah i mean but who who thought this up right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so what i found interesting was the the wide range of applications that they immediately found for rubber it was very clearly to them this is a this is a very useful material and we need to master it so they probably did quite a bit of experimentation to get these different properties by mixing different proportions of latex and morning glory juice. And we're able to make uh, a very, very hard wear resistant rubber for their sandals. You mentioned the, the bouncy rubber for the balls that were used in religious games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, they also made rubber bands. Yeah. That's great. Rubber sculptures. That was one which I love the idea of thinking about some Mesoamerican guy sitting there trying to ha- hawk these rubber sculptures at one of these, you know, big game events that they clearly had. <laughs> you know, the weebles wobble, but they won't fall down exactly. as older than we thought. <laughs> yeah, take that play school. <laughs> Um, something that i thought was interesting is that so they went back and they looked at obviously they looked at when you know spanish explorers uh, at the diaries when they met the mesoamericans because they haven't found any of these like rubber sold sandals or some of the other rubber things that have been described but they have found a lot of the balls so they they knew that those were something that they did and they said this was really crazy they ranged in size from a few inches to a foot across that's it that's a really heavy rubber ball. A foot across bouncy ball could do some damage. <laughs> Serious damage. You know, my cat loves these things. She takes them to the top of our stairs at 2 a.m. and drops them down the wooden stairs. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't imagine a foot, foot across one. <laughs> well, you know, now that we know the recipe, I'll get to work on that. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the scientists that did this started to reproduce these experiments. They mixed different proportions of latex and morning glory juice and cooked it uh, to try to get a good guesstimate at what proportions they would have used to make these products. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine, you know, all academic basement or all academic labs are in a basement. That's just a a fact. (laughs) And yes. (laughs) So you you know that there were some people working on the upper floor. What is that smell? (laughs) And go down to find these these two professors uh, having this gooey, rubbery mess on, you know, a Coleman stove or something. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Dipping their shoes in it to try to... <laughs> because science. Exactly. It's exactly right. <laughs> I, I have to think this had to be really fun to reproduce. 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, they say that they think that, you know, this was actually quite a large industry, this rubber creation in Mesoamerica. So that's kind of, that's an interesting thing. That's going to be, this, this sort of spans across all genres and kind of tells you how everything's really interconnected, right? You can't just say compartmentalize this because, I mean, there's a huge economic study probably to be done out of this research. You could pay your tax in rubber that you produced See? in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And I thought, so th- these, I-, I got obsessed with the rubber bands a little bit. <laughs> and these are not, you know, I-, I was wondering, well, what do they do? Do they, you know, rubber band their their TPS reports together after a long day at the office? <laughs> Obviously. And no, it turns out they used these giant industrial rubber bands to put, you know, cutting blades on the head of weapons and <laughs> yeah, axes. Mm-hmm. And, to be used after they use the giant rubber balls in uh, sacrificial games. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Great. (laughs) Okay, so if you want to try this at home, it turns out that a 50-50 blend of latex and morning glory gives you the best elasticity for a bouncy ball, and a 3-to-1 mix of latex to morning glory gives you that hard, durable rubber that you can use on your sandals. There you go. I think that's really interesting that, you know, they, they're focusing on the sandals a lot, even though they've never found any. Where did that all go? Are they still being worn? Or is it that good? You know, I think that may be what Chacos are. Oh, that's a good call. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. So it's not a Vibram soul. It's a Mesoamerican. Uh, yeah. Exactly, because, you know, I bought a pair of Chacos when I was a freshman, and I still have them. <laughs> And they're still fine. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> yeah, this this was really cool. Um, that is not something you would think of. You know, material science, you always think of what we're doing now, not putting it backwards into archaeological digs. That's really neat. Well, and it turns out that rubber was not the only trick that these folks had up their sleeves. There is evidence that they were uh, pretty proficient material engineers with other materials and this is exciting uh several research groups as well we want to start looking more at uh, things like metallurgy and mortars and plasters and paints right mm-hmm. yeah because i mean it says they found that the oldest balls were 1600 bc so yeah that's a long time ago and you know this means that they probably used a lot of geological materials for these things Who knew that studying the earth was worth our while? (laughs) Exactly. So, (laughs) you know, if these folks are looking for collaborators. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I'll test out your bouncy balls. I'll give them to my cat. There you go. (laughs) She's very particular about her. What's the word again? Uh, Durometer. Yeah. Yeah. She's very particular about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Her parometer. Oh, sorry. Well, you know, maybe maybe your cat would prefer the the more original, the original bouncy ball, the 50-50. She, prob- she probably would. Exactly. It, it fits the teeth better. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you try this out and find the appropriate proportion of latex to morning glory vine juice, <laughs> we would love to see your results. <laughs> 
Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, please, please, please send us to those. <laughs> send us that. A show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we're at don'tpanicgeo. Uh, you can always show off those bouncy ball pictures on our Slack channel, thesoftwareunderground.org, and we're on the Don't Panic channel. Um, again, thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Uh, Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo is where you can go if you're interested in supporting our podcast. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Whereas about a three-to-one mix, Latex to Morning Glory, gave you the harder, durable, sous-shole. Harder, durable, shoe-sole material. <laughs> I'm sorry. You got to try it one more time. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say shoe soul <laughs> over and over. Okay. <laughs>